Welcome to the TCW Investment Perspectives Podcast. I'm Anisha Goodley, Head of the Portfolio Specialist Team for TCW's Emerging Markets Group in Los Angeles. I'm here with Brett Rowley, our Sovereign Analyst for Africa and the Middle East. Brett has been covering EM Sovereign Credit for over 25 years and has spent the last decade plus as a dedicated analyst for the region. Today we're going to focus on Brett's outlook for the Middle East, the economic impact of the conflict, and signposts that he's watching for a potential de-escalation. Brett, it's great to have you back. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Anisha. It's uh, good to be back with you. Um, and I guess I want to preface, I approach this topic with a, a deep sense of humility. Even though I've been looking at uh, the region for almost 15 years now, one eye on Africa, one eye on the Middle East. I know there are people who live and breathe it daily, but, but I'm looking forward to you know, chatting about my experience and you know, what I'm seeing right now. Well, thank you, Brett, for that. Certainly, we are looking forward to hearing your views. And perhaps just to kick off, to frame the discussion, why don't you share with us what the latest is in the Gaza conflict? Today is February 7th. For everyone listening, this is when we're recording it. And also just share with us, who are the various parties involved? Yeah, I mean, I guess at at first glance, it seems pretty simple. I mean, Israel and Hamas are at war. You know, both sides have stated that, you know, they want to destroy each other, but the geopolitics and the underlying drivers of this violence are much more complex. My first trip to the region was almost 15 years ago. And coming up to speed on, on that after covering Asia for uh, over a decade, I tried to figure out the geoeconomics, the geopolitics. And what I, get, I guess what I, what I discovered is it's not just about the players, but also many layers uh, as you look into like the, uh, the family dynamics there, who are the producers, who are the consumers. But, but there are many layers you know, with the difference between the Shia and the Sunni traditions. Really just takes a, a, lot, of, a lot of study and a, and a lot of background to really understand what's going on today. I mean, it was four months ago today. You mentioned today's February 7th, four months ago today when uh, Hamas attacked Israel. And with the, that barrage of media coverage and you know, headlines that we've seen broadcasting all the death and destruction since then, it seems like this war campaign has been going on a really long time. But you have to remember, it's, uh, you know, people have been fighting over this small strip of land for centuries. It's all the big historic empires, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Ottomans, everybody has, uh, has fought over this. And, and so I don't say that to minimize the current conflict, but you know, to demonstrate how complex the relationships are here in the region and, and why it will be difficult to achieve a lasting peace agreement. I think we can share that sentiment with you in terms of how complex it is and how we share in the compassion that you have for, for everyone in the region. I do want to ask if tensions have been bubbling beneath the surface for several years at least, what finally caused things to erupt? Yeah, I, I, ironically, it's, it's, uh, I think some of it can be traced back to the fact that Israel has made progress on normalizing relations with other Arab countries. We saw the Abraham Accords signed in September of 2020, and since then there have been a lot of agreements to increase investments between Israel and Bahrain, Israel and the UAE. And, you know, there was some speculation or, you know, hope that eventually Israel might even be able to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. And, and I think as uh, Hamas and, and Iran and some of these other players that are, have, have been anti-Israelists, they saw some of these relations get normalized. They were worried 
that the, the plight of the Palestinians was being forgotten. And that as Israel, you know, some of these new friends in the region increased their economic interests, that all of these other things that they had been fighting for and all these other things that they should be allied with, with other Arabs, uh, you know, was just being swept under the rug. Yeah, so, so meanwhile, you know, Israeli settlements in, were expanding in the region. You know, Hamas looked at the normalization of all these deals and felt that its Arab neighbors were forgetting the plight of the Palestinian people. And at the same time, you look at the domestic politics in Israel, right? And over, over the past uh, year or so, they were focused on uh, Bibi Netanyahu's efforts to judicial reform. And so I think from just a purely tactical perspective, Hamas looked at what was going on domestically in Israel and saw it as a moment of weakness. And it was a a good time for them to strike back, to remind people of of what was going on in the occupied settlements. And, And so they went ahead and moved forward with the attack on October 7th. Yeah, Hamas had also seen Hezbollah and its growing strength and influence in Lebanon. And they've seen the Houthis in, uh, in Yemen with a much stronger resistance against the Saudi, Saudis uh, over the past several years. So I think they, they thought it was a good opportunity to reassert themselves and, and get a place for them on the map when Israel was basically fighting with itself. So from here, what is your base case? Well, my central scenario remains that the war will remain relatively contained. Uh, within the region. There won't be significant spillover into neighboring countries, and and specifically that it won't draw the U.S. and Iran into a full-scale war. Fighting will probably continue for several more months, but uh, Hamas allies in the region, what they're trying to do is demonstrate support for Hamas and and Iran and its proxies uh, without trying to trigger, trigger a broader response from Israel. I want to pick up on what you just said about the U.S. and Iran. You've been you've stated multiple times on the desk that they have both been relatively restrained in their attacks. Can you expand on this for the audience? Sure. If if you just focus on the headlines every day, I mean the headlines are scary. The footage is you know it's it's heartbreaking. But one thing does seem clear: nobody wants us to escalate into a hot war between Iran and the United States. The U.S. is unwavering in its support for Israel, but the Biden administration has also tried to rein in Netanyahu and ease the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Um, you know, Secretary of State Blinken is over there again, trying to negotiate a ceasefire and, and release of the hostages right now. At the same time, Iran has been, you know, keeping a tight leash on Hezbollah. There have been, da- you know, since October 7th, there have been daily exchanges of, of ammunition and fire between the Hezbollah militias and Israeli forces. But clearly, Hezbollah is a much better equipped militia and, and fighting force than, than even Hamas. They could do a lot of destruction to Israel if they really put their mind to it. And Brett, tell us why Iran has been holding Hezbollah back. So as Hezbollah is a much more important ally to Iran than Hamas or, or even the Houthis. If Hezbollah were to attack Israel, and U.S. would be forced to come in and, and help defend Israel on that front. And that would be a clear escalation where and a much greater chance of the U.S. And, and Iran having to go into direct military conflict. And what do you see potentially getting us there into further escalation? And what kind of probability would you even assign to that? Uh, I, think the, I think the biggest risk for escalation is a miscalculation uh, you know, from any of, the, any of the key players. I mean, 
as I mentioned before, this is a very small strip of land. We saw uh, last weekend when, when the U.S. military personnel were killed uh, in Jordan, right? If the U.S. had not been restrained in its response, if it had automatically decided to, to go ahead and retaliate against Iran or what they you know, thought was uh, an Iran-backed, uh, then we could have seen this escalate into, into, a hot, into a hot war. I think the, and so whether it's a miscalculation on the, on the part of uh, you know, Hamas, a miscalculation on the part of the Hezbollah, you know, let's say if the Biden administration thought that it needed to have a more aggressive response to deter Iran from further attacks against U.S. assets, that, that would be you know, a potential miscalculation that could just bring in and enforce a response from Iran that nobody initially wanted to do, but they felt like they were compelled to. And, and so I think particularly with the U.S. election coming up, perceptions about how the, you know, how the Biden administration is responding to these threats and, and the potential for Trump to you know, try and, and portray Biden as, uh, uh, as somebody who is, is not defending Israel and our allies. You know, I think there's, there's a potential for miscal- miscalculations uh, on a lot of different fronts. And how about a de-escalation? That's what we're all hoping for, obviously. I think the signs that we've seen over the past several days with the negotiations that are being brokered by Qatar and Egypt with, uh, with Hamas um, and, and Secretary Blinken and Israel to try and come up with a ceasefire. Uh, latest discussion today is about a potential three-stage a ceasefire agreement uh, that could eventually come to an end of the war. I mean, obviously, that's something that we hope for, but there's, given the complexities of, uh, of how this will ultimately play out, the fact that Hamas and, uh, and its allies are demanding a Palestinian state in exchange for the end of the war, there's it's, you know, a lot of these things are just going to be very difficult to achieve. But hopefully the next step is at least a ceasefire agreement, a temporary one that will allow more hostages to be released. And then eventually, you know, I think the only real solution is for a political solution rather than a military solution. And how about the economic and market impact of the conflict? You know, that's, it's, uh, it's been interesting to watch so far because typically when we see tensions rise in the Middle East, oil prices spike. You know, there's a, a risk premium to oil prices. That certainly happened uh, a little bit in this case. One thing that we have not seen so far is a big risk to oil infrastructure and, and to oil supplies. That's what typically tends to get people really scared about oil. Even with the, with the attacks that we've seen in the Red Sea on, on, on some of the ships, most of those have been cargo ships, not oil tankers. And, and so to the extent that uh, we don't really see a big oil supply risk, oil prices are somewhat higher, but they haven't really spiked to you know, what they could be if this thing were to uh, affect oil assets itself. Right. How do you think about China's role in terms of what's happening with the shipping? Yeah, China, it's, it's probably one of the most impacted in, in terms of the increase in shipping costs. Um, you know, shipping costs are up about five times since uh, some of these attacks have started, and primarily because they've been targeting cargo ships. Initially, they said they were targeting those destined for Israel, but we, you know, those attacks do seem to be fairly indiscriminate. But instead, uh, what, the, what shippers have had to do is reroute around the Horn of Africa, which takes... Uh, a lot longer, and it also raises shipping costs and insurance costs. And so China's actually started putting pressure on uh, Iran to try and get the Houthis uh, rebels to, to scale back some of these attacks because it's affecting their shipping costs. And a lot of the goods are those, you know, going 
basically from China to other places and back and forth to China. So, so China does have a key role to play in this. And since they you know, obviously have, uh, they're sympathetic to, uh, to Iran and, and some of the others and certainly trade oil with Iran, then uh, you know, it's in their interest to try and help de-escalate the situation there as well. Thank you, Brett. And then lastly, I know you're flying off to the Middle East tomorrow. Tell us a bit about where, where you're going to go, who you're going to meet, and what you're hoping to gain. Well, I won't be going into any of the areas where there's active fighting. Uh, you know, the visit is is one of my regular research trips to the GCC. So I'll hit Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Oman, Qatar, Kuwait, and in the UAE. And when I'm when I'm there, I typically meet with policymakers, those at Ministry of Finance, uh, being a fixed income investor, the debt management offices in these countries, central banks. You know, but clearly one of the key things that I'll also be focusing on, in addition to the macro outlooks for each country, is how committed are they to donor support for specifically for Egypt, right? Who is a, a key player in this also potentially for Jordan who may have to deal with a lot of refugees they have historically. Uh, and so Egypt and Jordan have been two countries that could potentially be affected by the humanitarian crisis uh, in Gaza. And so it's really just about how committed some of them uh, may be to, you know, peace efforts, but also, you know, we saw with the, I talked about the Abraham Accords earlier. Many people speculated as soon as the attack happened on October 7th that some of those, uh, the normalization of relations might not just be paused, but eventually even reversed. Uh, since then, we've seen most, uh, most of the countries that agreed to normalize relations with Israel, even though there's a bit of a cooling, nobody is actually walking back the investments. And so they said once things calm down, they do want to continue some of uh, some of these investments and and even Saudi Arabia has not ruled out uh, normalizing relations with Israel but there are going to be certain conditions that have to be met uh, such as a Palestinian state created so there's there's a lot of you know geopolitical issues that that I'll talk to officials about in addition to the general macro environment that uh, that I usually cover when I'm on the ground well thank you Brett thank you for being here today we look forward to hearing your update after your trip and safe travels Thanks, Anisha. Thank you for joining us today on TCW Investment Insights. For more insights from TCW, please visit tcw.com insights. This material is for general information purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. TCW, its officers, directors, employees, or clients may have positions in securities or investments mentioned in this publication which positions may change at any time without notice. While the information and statistical data contained herein are based on sources believed to be reliable, we do not represent that it is accurate and should not be relied on as such, or be the basis for an investment decision. The information contained herein may include preliminary information and or, quote, forward-looking statements, end quote. Due to numerous factors, actual events may differ substantially from those presented. TCW assumes no duty to update any forward-looking statements or opinions in this document. Any opinions expressed herein are current only as of the time made and are subject to change without notice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.